Welcome to Better Cast Saul, the officially unofficial podcast for Better Call Saul on AMC. I'm Jim. I'm Alexis. And today we're talking about season five, episode six, titled Wexler v. Goodman. The episode we knew had to come eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexis, what did you think? Forgive me for swearing this early into the podcast, but holy fucking shit, <laughs> this episode. Are you kidding me? I have never been so uncomfortable watching an hour of television yeah. than I was for this. What about it made you uncomfortable? The all of it. <laughs> the confrontations. <laughs> the, the, the betrayals. The, the betrayals, the deliberate throwing of the feelings under the bus. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's bad. What did you think? Uh, I, th- I think the same. It was a very intense hour of television. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting because so much of what Jimmy does is so funny. Mm-hmm. And it even down to the commercials he makes. Like every time it's like, yeah, in the background, I'm, <laughs> yep. I, I'm like, man, that's really hilarious. And then I, and then I snap out of it and I look at Kim and I go, oh, fuck. Yeah, literally doing everything she can to communicate with her body to Jimmy. What the mm-hmm. fuck are you doing, you asshole? <laughs> All it right. was amazing. Yes, we're we're done cursing for the whole episode. <laughs> oh, that's not that's not true. You can't promise that. No, absolutely not. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not just Jimmy's machinations, but uh, there are a lot of machinations around here. Mike's Mike's mm-hmm. doing a lot of stuff uh, with his police background that is really putting the screws to Lalo this episode, and I really loved seeing all that. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of the more exciting part, I guess, of the Gus storyline is when, like, Nacho and Lalo are involved because, you know, I, I think if Gus were just doing his thing, it would sort of be business as usual and everything is very low key. And yeah. yeah, pretty boring. Lots of dramatic paperwork shots. We would see, <laughs> right. we would have the pin coming at us as though we were a piece of paper. <laughs> Absolutely. We might, we, there might be a button cam where we see Gus's fingers buttoning up his work shirt. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, like, when you inject Lalo and Nacho, which I think was missing from the last couple of episodes. I would agree with that. Uh, definitely. It, it adds some some flair to the whole thing. So, yeah, I'm, I was really um, interested in this episode. Even from the first scene, maybe we can get into talking about it now, mm-hmm. um, where a young Kim, I, I think this is our Kim, is standing outside a junior high school with a big old cello. <laughs> Yeah. At night, waiting for her mom to pick her up. And when she does, she's drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kim refuses to get in the car and decides to walk home instead. Uh, this is, I really, really wanted more information on Kim because we got a little bit of that with Mr. Acker. Yeah. Where we weren't quite sure if she was saying what he needed to hear or if she was speaking some truth about her past. And it seems like now we know she was talking uh in in the first person here like i very much experienced these things that i told you about i feel like we are starting to realize that kim is the real dark horse of this series because mm-hmm. we're being drip fed little bits of her background yeah especially in this season and it's just it's so interesting we're getting to see a more full view of who she actually is as a person we know who she is around jimmy we know who mm-hmm. she is in her law practice but we don't actually know who Kim is, what who she is when she's by herself. Yeah. Similar to how we don't really know Howard all that well. Yeah. Like Howard, you know, is his job. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, Kim has been her job. And she's shown like the edges of her personality around Jimmy. Right. But I don't feel like we've ever understood what motivates her. Yes. Uh, well, we understand what motivates her now, but what has pushed her to the place she's at? 
which, you know, all goes back to how you were raised and the things you've experienced in your life. And so I'm super happy to be seeing some glimpse into that, that past. There are two sides to her character. Absolutely. There's the button down mm -hmm. career woman mm -hmm. just trying to do her best by people and for herself. And there's also this kind of darker half where she does kind of enjoy these cons that she ends up being involved in. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what led to that side of her existing. But we yeah. get to see her fucking drunk ass mom trying to pick her up from school when it's dark outside already. The, Are you kidding me? Well, so okay, this betrays a couple of things, right? A, yeah. her her mom is uh, has some problems with alcohol mm -hmm. and clearly doesn't know how to manage it, um, and is endangering Kim's life in the process. But also, she lied to her, and I think that's important. That's really important, right? Like she, Kim is used to people letting her down. Yeah. Um, because she grew up that way. Her mom must have said like, Hey, I'll be there at three o'clock to pick you up, whatever. Mm -hmm. When you're done with your practice here, she is standing. What must be hours later outside of a completely abandoned school. Yep. Uh, and yeah, she's, she must feel betrayed. And so when you stack that against, uh, the stuff that's happening in the modern day, you can kind of see how she would end up in that situation. I mean, yeah. it just, it's very cyclical, the cycle of abuse. I don't. You can call it abuse or just manipulation, mm -hmm. maybe. Oh, it's abuse. I mean, when she screams, oh, you never listen to me. That, yeah. Maybe she never listens because you never have anything worth saying. Like, I've, ooh, big <laughs> mood. Big mood. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it does seem like, yes, there's a weird, uh, there's a dichotomy within Kim, one which sort of resents that behavior and one which is sort of attracted to it. Or just used to it. I think whenever or you used to it, yeah. whenever you experience so much of that behavior in your day-to-day -day life, it becomes kind of the new normal for you. Mm -hmm. And in some weird, very fucked up, psychologically explainable way, when that isn't happening, you almost feel more uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like you develop all these coping mechanisms. Yeah, and um, then whenever you're in a situation where you can't, you don't have a coping mechanism for it because it's just like normal <laughs> and healthy you don't know what to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Kim in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, and then we move on to Saul in a nutshell, where he shows his film crew an old commercial for Mesa Verde and asks if they can replicate the style. He wants it by tomorrow, but they say, well, look, we can't do this in less than a week. And they sort of enumerate the logistical challenges. And he suggests they do it with a green screen, and they set about filming in the spa. That's a pretty good scene. Um, the, the kid they got to play Kevin... And this commercial is, <laughs> is uh, I can't imagine this kid not growing up to look exactly like Kevin. They did some amazing casting in this episode. Yeah. I didn't even mention it, but Kim's mom sounds exactly like her. Uh -huh. It's crazy. And and little Kim, as soon as I saw the, the ponytail and the blonde hair, like mm -hmm. I knew it was Kim. But anyway, that has nothing to do with the scene. Yeah, no, the, this kid's great. Um, Kevin's dad becomes hilarious later. <laughs> but... There are a lot of hilarious people in this scene, like where they're they're actually filming the thing. Yeah. Uh, there's the, I don't know, just some of the highlights for me is this very stern looking lady and Saul <laughs> asked her, can you smile warmly? And she shakes her head. No? Okay. I like it. Very good. I also like the, I would say probably the, the most attractive person who is in any of the little vignettes that he painted. Mm-hmm. They were literally manipulating every part of her face, uh, <laughs> her poor little face. They're like moving her jaw open and yes. There's just so many little things in this scene that add up. Like even the 
the dude who is operating the camera. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to call him. He's not the director because Saul's the director. I guess he's a cinematographer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he camera operator. He, he's doing little things like Saul is is moving in and out of frame and while he's trying to line up a shot. And at one point, Saul gets up there and is talking for more than five seconds. And he just kind of looks up at the ceiling, waiting <laughs> for Saul to get out of the way. <laughs> Uh, he's got the pizza hanging from his mouth the whole time. <laughs> yeah. The very first person that Saul puts in front of the camera, he's like, you got to stand right here. Mm-hmm. And then one second later, <laughs> camera guy is coming and moving him <laughs> yeah. six inches to the left. To where he actually yeah. needs to stand. No, it's great. <laughs> Just so many little things. I, I don't even know how you orchestrate something like this because it looks so fast and furious on the screen. Like yeah. they just sat down and in an, in a matter of an hour, they filmed 15 of these things. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it took much longer. I'm sure it took at least a whole day to do this. Uh, but they probably did a whole bunch of takes. And every time they said, you know what would be better is if I went over here and did this. Right. Uh, I wonder how much of it is improvised because we know Bob Kirk with his background. He's bringing that to the yeah, stage. For sure. No, it, it's great. <laughs> However they got that, it worked out. Yeah, uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to the Insider podcast this week, unfortunately. Oh, no. I forgot all about it. There are a lot of... A lot of things in there, apparently. Something about now is the perfect time to go to Disney World? Uh, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> okay. So hopefully uh, they're not spreading that. <laughs> anyway, uh, we go back to Kim, who shows up at the spa to talk. Actually, we don't go back to her. We go to her modern day here. Um, she shows up at the spa. She asks if Acker would settle for 75000 and tells him that uh, Jimmy, that she just wants the scam to end because it's getting too risky. So Jimmy tries to persuade her to continue, but ultimately she decides to shut it down. And he agrees? Agrees. He tells he, her, okay. He he tells her that he agrees. Yeah. Let's say that. He, this is the thing about Saul. You can tell whenever he's lying because mm-hmm. he moves his body like a lot. He is, he's swaying his torso back and forth. <laughs> he is like doing a lot of stuff with his hands uh-huh. he, when he's in full Saul mode. And he was doing that even now yeah. when he was talking to Kim, which on second watch, I thought to myself, this motherfucker was already, he already had this plan before she even got there. Yeah, it's weird to me. Um, and I know they kind of need this to work this way, but like Kim is so perceptive in those scenes when she's young, right? She like mm-hmm. can smell the booze. She knows that's not just one beer or one drink or whatever. She can... She understands that her mom is lying to her, like all all these things. But then when Jimmy does it later in this episode um, and she's a grown woman, she kind of can't tell that Jimmy's going to go ahead with this thing anyway. Or, Even though we as an audience can, yeah. they, they need her character to be a little oblivious in this moment for this to work, for for them to sell it to the audience mm-hmm. that he's decided not to do this or that he's decided to go ahead with this regardless, but also for her to believe him. At the very least, she she wants to believe him, and that might be that yeah. might be even worse than actually believing him. That's true, and I mean he's not wrong about being, there being no way to prove anything here, but also Kim is right. This is just too risky. It's not worth it. It's very it's maybe not legally risky, but it is so risky for everybody's reputations who are mm-hmm. involved, and we know that that's a thing that she cares about. Mm-hmm especially her own yeah mm-hmm. um i think one of the things that causes jimmy to go ahead with this scheme is e- even knowing 
it's going to be a hard sell after the fact to get Kim to trust him again. <laughs> uh, he just loves doing this and you can see it like when he's in his director mode, right? He's moving, he's shaking, he's doing everything right. Everything's clicking. He gets in a zone there that he loves and, and you can see it. It's reflected in his dialogue here in the scene when he says, like, think about the, you know, look at, look at how good the play is going. Like, right. think about the play. You know, he loves the play itself, not just the results that th- those plays get. I mean, there's a reason why they call them con artists, yeah. right? This is very much his art. Absolutely. All right, then Gus, Nacho, and Michael meet at an old factory. Nacho's back. Nacho's back, and he explains that Lalo is using Crazy 8 to feed the DEA info. Gus tells Victor to protect our people, which to him, I guess, means promoting some lower level drug dealers and finding new ones to get arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Gus or Nacho said, also says that Lalo is going to chip away at his business until the bosses cut him off. And Gus appoints Mike as Nacho's new point of contact. And after he leaves, Nacho informs Mike what kind of person he's dealing with in Gus, which I, I think Mike knows. I don't know. You've got this, this dueling message here, right? The one coming from Gus, which is, I'm not such a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Look at all the, the good I do in Mexico. But uh, also, I'm threatening people's families. Right, yeah. right. Like, when he hears about Nacho's father, mm-hmm. I think Mike's like, oh, oh, man. Right. He, this he, fucker. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he says, first, we'll take out Lalo, and then we'll talk. Yeah. I don't know that he's open to that if if it was just Nacho involved in this, but because it's Nacho's father as well, mm-hmm. I think he's willing to get involved. Yeah, he played the family angle for sure. That's exactly the right angle to play with Mike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's weird too because, look, we know Gus can't die, mm-hmm. right? So any talk they have is going to be completely fruitless from this, the potential to take out Gus. So whatever, I guess whatever talk they have, I'm going to be looking at it and go, how can this backfire on Nacho? Because he's the only wild card here. Mm-hmm. We know Mike lives. We know Mike is still working for Gus. Yep. We know Gus lives. I, I don't know. Maybe So maybe they try and take out Gus and Mike is just sneakier than uh, some of the other people who've tried in the past and he doesn't ever find out. Gus doesn't ever find out about it. I don't know. They've kind of written themselves into a strange corner here where the only thing they can do is put Nacho in danger. There's a couple of corners that they've written themselves into, I think, in this episode. I will get to it a little bit later, the specific one that I'm talking about. But yeah, it's really interesting to have to come up with a prequel Mm -hmm. and have everything be completely canonical with all the history that already exists and still make it interesting when you know where a lot of these characters are going to end up. So yeah. you're right. Nacho is the only wild card in this particular situation and Lalo to some lesser extent. And I think they've done a really great job of making Nacho a character that we care about. Oh my God, um, I like Nacho so much. I don't know why, but I do. Yeah. He, you know, he's that gangster with a heart of gold, that kind of thing. Oh, like, Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a trope, but honestly, he's, he's a, a well acted and beautiful trope. Yes. <laughs> so I have no problem with it. Car, glossy. Eyelashes, refuse to quit. That's not true. <laughs> chain, off the chain. <laughs> On the neck, thank you. Do you um, notice his shirt? He has, he very rarely wears colors, mm-hmm. but today he was wearing that shirt with the red splotch. Exactly the same spot that Mike got stabbed. 
same spot that Mike got shot. And it's it's right there, man. And it's just, this is full of Breaking Bad stuff. He's talking about they shot me and... I think he's lying about Lalo's activities. I don't think Lalo talked about that stuff in front of him. That's my theory. About what stuff in front of him? So he told Mike and Gus that Lalo said in front of him that he was going to go after their stuff in mm, these okay. each of these specific ways. There was also a big um before he said that, which is not very Nacho-like. Is he making a play? I think he's making a play. Oh, so dangerous. So dangerous. What are you doing? You're making a play not only on Gus now, but on Mike. That's rough. Yeah. But Ooh. I think that's what he's doing. I, I think okay. maybe he just wants Lalo out of the picture as soon as possible. Yeah. Because then, you know, all the Salamanca stuff goes away, right? And right. Gus has no reason to hold him anymore, no reason mm-hmm. to threaten his father. Exactly. Yeah, if he can... He's doing it for his pops, absolutely. If he can accelerate this thing and, and sort of get through it before he gets cut out of it, mm-hmm. then maybe he's got a chance. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting theory. I don't think he theory. actually knows Lalo's plan. Well, so, he does know where Lalo is. He does um, know Because he gets he him arrested later. But yeah, yeah, maybe he doesn't know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think he's just guessing feeding them enough information to make them scared enough to want to move on Lalo now, which, mm-hmm. as we see, they do. That works. Yep. All right. Kim calls Mesa Verde to relay the good news about the settlement. Um, and they say, she says they're going to meet with him and his lawyer, Saul Goodman, very <laughs> soon. And then Kim apologizes to Rich for yelling at him. The only thing he's angry about is that she did it in front of the other employees and he takes her to lunch and they walk out together in front of everyone, showing a Putting up a unified front here. Yep. He calls them troops, which, sure, I guess, whatever. Yeah. I don't know if that necessarily works, but if that's the way you want to look at it, if that's what helps you sleep at night, sure, Rich. They're in a battle against evil? Uh, The unlawful? The unlawful. Crime? Sure. Crime. Yes. (laughs) Fighting crime. They're out there on the streets. They're in a battle against their own poverty. And they've won it many times over. Apparently. Uh, I don't have a ton to say about this scene. Me either. There are more interesting things to talk about. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Uh, Such as the San Pedro Branch Library, where Mike claims he's a private investigator and talks to the librarian who tells him that she was at the travel wire location that Lala broke into and shows her, uh, Mike shows her a picture of Lala's car, which she identifies as being at the location that day. And Mike says, hey, you should probably call the detectives right now in front of me. And then he feeds her kind of what to say to mm-hmm. them. Don't tell them about me because uh, the, I gave you a fake name. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. <laughs> because this character doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Um, so I had to go back and look at the travel wire scenes from last season. Mm-hmm. Because there's some intimation here that... I mean, there's not even intimation. There's pictures of it. Um, Mike sorts through pictures, rifles through pictures of this burnt out husk of a strip mall, uh, which used to be the travel wire place. I was under the impression, I don't know why I got this impression, because Lalo's a very, very bad man. (laughs) But I was under the impression that when he went through the ceiling and broke into that place to get the camera footage, he just knocked out the clerk. Yeah. And took the, like, got the camera footage and left and... That was it. I don't know why he would have burned the place down. I mean, erase the evidence, I guess, that he was ever there. Like, fingerprints, nothing's going to survive that. Okay, but if he has the tape, like, they don't have... I don't know if they have his fingerprints on file in the States. Yeah, I don't Why would that even be a thing? I don't know. I'm Um, curious if he actually did it or not. 
I don't know why it wouldn't have been him. Yeah, but... I assume it was him. Yeah. Um, but we don't ever actually see him burn the place down. He just sort of gets the information he needs, looks at the camera, smiles, and then the mm-hmm. scene cuts. Um, so they're doing like, not retconning here, but filling in the blanks. Right. Um, they definitely had that woman knocking on the door and him pointing at the sign. Everything she said was true. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, but yeah, I, I was kind of surprised to see how brutal he was in that scenario. And I maybe I'm fooled. Maybe I'm fooled by the <laughs> smile and the, the hair and the singing and the cooking and everything. Maybe I think Lalo's a cool guy. After this scene, I'm not, I'm not so much thinking he's a cool guy. This is a very wild card, kind of a little Tuco-ish thing to do mm-hmm. to burn the place down afterward. I, maybe Salamancas have a... Yeah, he's a Salamanca. kind of streak. Yeah. Through and through, apparently. I, it just took this for me to finally understand that, I guess. <laughs> Uh, did you th- did you think it was okay, like how easy it was for Mike to plant this evidence, basically? Yeah, it made sense to me. Yeah, I uh, people's memories are faulty, and if you like implanting a memory in someone is pretty easy, mm-hmm. like implanting a false memory, uh, pretty simple. If you just suggest the right things, and and crucially, he has this story. That, that he's hired by the family and they want yeah. justice and like that goes a long way toward making people manufacture things in their own mind mm-hmm. um, just so they can help right should make you pretty scared of eyewitness testimony I yeah. tell you I mean uh, the there's a reason that multiple people have to, have to testify yeah. uh, as eyewitnesses for it to really be much of anything mm-hmm. in a court of law because yes it's completely infallible I mean Saul uh demonstrated that in in great fashion uh, an episode or two ago mm-hmm. with the the whole kiss thing right in, in the courtroom where he yeah, tricked the guy into he thinking, kissed everybody yeah he kissed everybody <laughs> and they 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 all became forgot. leather daddies and flew off into the sunset <laughs> it was beautiful it was the best scene of this whole season i will fight you about this and it was horny all right moving <laughs> so on horny. i don't want to see that old man as a leather daddy <laughs> But I might have to before the season's up. Oh, God. Uh, Saul works his magic for two sex workers who offer him their services, which he declines. They immediately go back out in the field, and then Saul rethinks it, asking how much for an hour of their time. Before we move on to the next scene, I just, or the next part of this scene, I guess, I just really wanted to point out how amazing of a lawyer, uh, a huckster, trickster, lawyer Saul is they wore those outfits into court yes and he somehow succeeded in their case that's amazing that's amazing to me like you contrast that with how Kim was acting last season when she was doing the PD stuff and telling people like okay here's how you need to dress (laughs) here's like we're gonna be there on time everything Saul just walks in there and razzle dazzles the whole court apparently and then within the same fucking courthouse, with an earshot of other people, they say, hey, you want a rub and tug? Uh, it's very clean, I promise. Yeah. We won't get anything on your suit. None of your fluids. <laughs> uh, next part of the scene, Howard's having lunch at his favorite restaurant when those two sex workers oh show God. up and cause a scene as Saul watches and narrates the scene from the outside. Saul calls uh, Olivia Bitsui after that and asks if she's ever heard of Mesa Verde. This is... I, I feel so bad for Howard. So bad. <laughs> oh, my God. This is mortifying. This is mortifying for me to watch in the basement Yeah. on a TV. Let alone 
sitting at the table with him. Oh my god! Uh, in a crowded restaurant. Everybody's looking. Oh, Are yeah. you kidding me? And they had he, just gossiped about this other judge. Right. So you know how fast this shit spreads in the legal community. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's going to oh be everywhere. God. Howard's reputation is at stake here, uh, and that's really all he has. Like I, Howard is very much uh, a man of image a man mm-hmm. of i like i don't know how good he is at being a lawyer clearly he was never as good legally as chuck was mm-hmm. chuck was kind of the genius that everyone looked up to um he was more of the salesman and i think that if you tear that down i'm not sure howard has much of anything left and so this is why i'm concerned for howard because i like howard uh my opinion over the years has changed very much in howard's favor and I really think he's doing better. Um, and so to see someone so jealous, someone so bitter um, that someone else is doing so well in a very similar situation, uh, to see Saul tear him down is pretty brutal. And he didn't even put a lot of thought into this. We see his face change in the courthouse after, as the yeah. sex workers are walking away. He made that decision in that moment. So not only is he like, Potentially destroying this man's career, but he's mm. doing it on just like the spur, the spur of the moment thing. Yeah, um, and you can see the look on his face after he does it. He's he's not comfortable with it. He feels bad about it. There's something in Jimmy that's like uh, there are two warring uh, things going on within Jimmy. He wants desperately to get some sort of perceived revenge on Howard mm-hmm. for holding him back all these years, but at the same time. I think he knows that it wasn't Howard's fault. Yeah. Uh, certainly primarily, but maybe not at all. And then he feels bad about doing these things that it, it, it's, it's weird to say, like you would feel bad about doing knowingly doing something to someone when you're the one doing it. Like he feels sorry for Howard in that moment, but like, that's how he feels. It's weird. He's like perpetrating this, this on Howard, but also like feeling bad for him at the same time. Yeah, this is the war, I think, between Jimmy and Saul, right? Mm -hmm. This person that he is becoming, it's creeping more and more into his personal life. Oh, yeah. And this person that he was where he cared about his brother and he was really trying, trying to do things the right way, Mm -hmm. the the way that everybody else approves of. Here's the other thing, the other juicy morsel that I absolutely (laughs) love about this scene. Juicy. It's not just Howard. Howard's sitting here and these hookers walk in and blow up his whole day. But who's sitting next to him other than Cliff Davis from Davis and Maine? Of course. Who? <laughs> Jimmy overflowed this man's toilets. Like, <laughs> you get, you have to remember, like, the, the scams that Jimmy's doing here. Like, Cliff has has had this times 10 mm-hmm. to get to get him to get Jimmy fired. Uh I, I just I can't help but think like there couldn't be a more perfect person to be sitting at this table than Cliff because he knows what Jimmy's capable of. He he doesn't yeah. realize that this is a scam, obviously, but if he did, he'd be like, oh, of course. Also, the balls of this man, Jimmy, who drives the most recognizable car in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I think we could agree. It's yeah. Piece of shit car. <laughs> just park like on the opposite street and yep. watch them through binoculars. What a... What an asshole. Yeah. I'm going to say that a lot this episode, but what a fucking asshole. <laughs> uh, one other morsel in this scene, uh, Olivia Bitsui. Mm-hmm. So 
I don't know where they got Olivia from. It's probably from an actor's name because they do that a lot. But Bitsui is definitely from an actor's name. It's uh, the last name of Jeremiah Bitsui, who plays Victor in the show, hmm. which is Gus, you know, one of Gus's henchmen, um, the guy that gets killed in Breaking Bad in Box Cutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a. Uh, they do that a lot, a lot, a lot. Like the Max Arseniega being, you know, Maximino Arseniega in and Gus's partner for a long time is the name of the guy who plays crazy eight. Um, this is like a thing with them. It's it's kind of fun. Yeah. If you also, if you have good material, just go ahead and use it. Yeah. Why not? Uh, the other interesting thing about that connection is that Jeremiah Bitsui actually has, uh, is part native American. And so Olivia Bitsui being part native American too, I think is a really nice connection. Yeah. I like that. Okay, moving on. Mike shows up at the police station and tricks the mail clerk into delivering a packet to Detective Roberts. Inside, there's an accident report, or yeah, an incident report from when Lalo rammed his way out of the parking lot in an attempt to follow Mike. Um, And this incident report includes a description of the vehicle that matches the one that the librarian just called in, and Detective Roberts connects those dots. Uh, Here's the thing that I'm not sure I understand. Where does Mike keep his massive stockpile of official police supplies? <laughs> does he have a closet? Does he have a whole warehouse? Does he have a briefcase full of these things? What What's he got? I can't tell because, listen, there were a lot of scribbles and marker mm-hmm. splotches on the yeah. front of that envelope. Was that the actual report? And he, how did he find that? Did yeah. he come in? Did he break in after hours or something to get know. this envelope? It is... Deeply unexplained. Does he know people still who can get a copy of that report? He might. Yeah, maybe. But man, going and and contacting them must be difficult Mm -hmm. at this point. Also, the fact that it had so many scribbles on it, it means it had already been passed between Mm -hmm. departments. Mm. I think it's what that means. Okay. I'm not not a cop. I don't actually know. I'm making making some wild leaps here, but it seemed seemed pretty real to me, but maybe that's the point. Yeah. Um, I, I do buy that Mike would have this stuff. Yeah. I think they've, they've done a really good job leaning on everybody's strengths here, um, mm-hmm. everybody's backstories to, you know, like to Jimmy using commercials as a weapon and like Mike using his police background as a weapon here or a tool. Yeah. Uh, makes I mean, a lot of sense. Just the way he's dressed. He's dressed as though he is some higher up cop person who is just in the in the cop shop for the day. Mm-hmm. It's totally believable. And the way that he talks, he's very confident about what he's saying. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Some random ass fucking male jockey <laughs> right. is going to think, oh, God, I don't want to piss this guy off. Yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever. I'll do. I'll do what you say. Yeah. Talks just trying to, to drink my shitty coffee. Walks the walk. Yeah. Uh, I like the banter here, too. Uh, this phone call where if it's a human body, yes, I'll investigate. <laughs> yeah. like, if, if, well, you if you can't fit under there. If you can't fit under yeah. there, then it's probably not a body. Click. Yeah. Good stuff. Yes. All right. Saul shows up to the settlement meeting with Mesa Verde. Kim offers 45000 Saul counters with $4 million. Kim is furious and ends the meeting. But before they clear the room, Saul plays in the commercials he made, which have all kinds of false claims. Everyone's outraged. Saul then reveals the photograph that Olivia Bitsui took, which matches the Mesa Verde logo. Kevin claims his father bought it, but actually he only bought the photo, not the copyright to it. And Jimmy says, or Saul says, I'll see you in court for the next four years, two years, whatever. 
I think my ulcers grew a quarter of an inch just watching this scene. It was so fucking awful. I felt this gut-burning cocktail of horror, anger, and hilarity because it's yeah. hilarious, but yeah. also cutting back to Kim's poor betrayed face and she mm. is furious and I was furious, but also this was so funny, but also, oh my God, I'm dying. Yeah, my bare so genitals grew a, a quarter of an inch. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Jimmy has no conscience, no fucking conscience. This is such a massive betrayal. Uh, and watching this scene, I just knew, I knew Jimmy was going to claim I did it all for you. This yep. was for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Jimmy's MO. And man, I keep saying how good Racy Horn is, but she's so fucking good in this. And I mean, Bob Odenkirk amazing i guess i've just seen more of bob odenkirk in the series and so when he does his thing he's just doing his thing he's fantastic in this scene um but god the just no conscience whatsoever no she deserves a fucking emmy for her performance Mm -hmm. in the show it's amazing she says so much without saying a single fucking word yeah it's amazing there, there are a lot of just like looks and squints and and head movements and stuff that's like I can't believe you're taking this, like Mm -hmm. you're doing this. This is like, she's telling him everything he needs to know and he just keeps barreling forward. Yeah, he's just, he's blatantly ignoring it because he's, he's on his plan and he's, he's good at this and he knows best. Yeah. I mean, it is really funny. It's 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 very funny. Every time. Yeah. Very genitals. (laughs) Yup. Yup. One, that was a bad commercial to begin with. The original commercial was was just fucking tacky and pokey. Pokey Mm -hmm. as hell. And then to add this layer of saltness to it. Dear God. I can't believe it. I just... I've never felt so uncomfortable and so amused at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, it's a weird... It's a weird mix of feelings. No, I think that's what this show does so well, is it... It creates a weird mixture of feelings within his audience, <laughs> but it feels perfectly natural within the scene. And also, it it creates a weird mix of emotions in its characters. Like I talked about earlier, where, you know, Saul's torturing Howard, Jimmy's mm-hmm. torturing Howard. He feels great and he feels awful at the same time, right? There's this weird, strange cocktail of emotion within Jimmy that's driving him forward and also holding him back. And like, the the, the, the characters in this show are never one-dimensional. With the exception of maybe Howard. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, Howard's got several layers. He has two One of them is at Japanese least. at this point. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th- this show is so great at it. I really appreciate that. If you had to add the phrase bare genitals to your law commercial, <laughs> which font would you choose to do it in? Because mm. I think Comic Sans is pretty much <laughs> That's it. pretty much the best choice. Yeah, Comic Sans is a good one. Uh, what what's like the Boogie Nights font? <laughs> is there like the Boogie Nights font? <laughs> what bare genitals in the Boogie Nights font? Bear Nights, Boogie Bear Genitals Nights. Uh, all right, let's talk about the rest of this. <laughs> no, scene, I don't I want guess. to. I want to talk about these commercials forever. <laughs> I mean, you can if you got more to say. <laughs> I don't. Okay, so the lawyers discuss whether Saul can run those commercials and how they get around this bullshit. Kevin stews, and I love this shot. The slow zoom in, yes. Yeah. 
just Ronald Kevin's stewing face. Uh, and he leaves the room and goes to see Saul in the parking garage to arrange a deal. Saul paints him a picture of a world where he pays actor Acker 45,000 and an apology and Olivia gets 45,000 or sorry, 200,000 and an apology and the injunction and the commercials disappear. I cannot believe that Saul does not get a Saul tid in this scene. I thought that's where you were going. I went for it. Yeah, you. it's... Ass salted? Well, ass salted. that's different. I, I <laughs> well, think he's being an to... ass. He's being an ass. He's a Saul. And Kevin's a Ted. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. That's, totally. that's what I was trying for. I'm with you, though, in spirit, if mm-hmm. not in the weird-ass <laughs> way that you just put that. <laughs> yes, I thought if Kevin were just a little bit more of a hothead, he mm-hmm. probably would have gotten hit. But he's already in legal hot water. He's clearly yeah. restraining himself. Absolutely. His, his face at the very end of this scene. And of course, we don't get to see the handshake because they want to leave us in suspense, even within the same fucking episode. Mm-hmm. I was actually, it was actually a little bit scary to see that suppressed uh-huh. fury. Because Kevin's a big guy. Big old man face, yeah. If he decides to hulk out on Jimmy, there's not much he's going to do. No. He can run. He could probably run. They do make it um, not explicit, but they imply that this they had they did shake hands and they had a handshake deal here because mm-hmm. later Kim says like, "Oh yeah, I know that yeah. that's just a verbal agreement. It's not binding." Like, mm-hmm. okay, let's move on to Mike. Uh, Nacho calls him up, tells him where Lalo is, and Mike gets the police on the radio to inform them. And the cops swarm Lalo, and he gives himself up. Uh, this again. Yes, you know, as an instance of Mike using his old police knowledge to call this in. Mm-hmm. His shiny, shiny police radio. Mm-hmm. And his shiny police lingo. <laughs> yep. Can the cops order you to drop your keys out the window? I mean, Is as far as I could tell, the cops can tell you to do whatever the fuck they want to do. And if you don't want to get, like, shot or whatever, you just have to do it. Yeah, I guess so. That's how we work. <laughs> yes. Um... He, Lalo tried, he thought about fighting it Mm -hmm. when it was one cop, but then when it became like six cops, he realized the jig was up and he tucked that little, tucked that little gun right back away. I don't don't know what his plan is here. Like they have his license plate. Mm -hmm. I think his plan is just to get arrested. Which I would note his license plate is not the same as the license plate in those photos that Mike shows a librarian. Was that a different car? The way that or the, does he change his license plates pretty often? <laughs> okay, one, I would believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, the way that the photos were taken with the car, they were so clear and the car was facing one direction in one photo and then it was the exact same place, exact same mm-hmm. everything, except it was facing a different direction. It seemed like it was a different car to me. Okay. I think he just pulled up a picture of the type of car that Lalo drives. Yeah, or maybe found out somebody like used his police background to find someone who's got the same type of car mm-hmm. and then went and took pictures of that. I think Mike can use Google. Uh, Computers. He's pretty he old. Seem like a computer guy. Although no. we also saw him taking shit apart to build a cell phone charger. Yeah, so. he seems like maybe an electronics guy, but not really a computer guy. How can you be one or the other? How can you be an, an electronics person? Boy, that word is hard to say quickly. An electronics? An electronics person and not a... Internet person? Yeah, I guess that's a thing. Uh, that's just called being old. <laughs> that's just being old. 
<laughs> Man, I guess. Uh, okay, let's move on to the final scene. Uh, Kim gets home, and Jimmy wants to talk about how well the con went. Kim tells him that it worked, but Kim is in no mood to celebrate. She tells Jimmy that she no longer trusts him because he made her the sucker, and Jimmy promises it will never happen again. Kim calls him a liar and says they have to end this now, or maybe the stupidest line ever uttered <laughs> in the history of cinema that can get married. What is she thinking? Why would Kim want to get married? I can see the legal reasons for why she would want to get married. Uh, two people who are married mm-hmm. cannot be compelled to testify against each other in court. So if one of his schemes breaks bad or something, she doesn't have to be a part of his fucking trial. But her personal life, her... her What personal life does she have outside of Jimmy? Let's ask ourselves that. What personal life will she have with Jimmy? Like, that's the scarier part. It's not like the lack of personal life. It's the whatever will be created by this unholy merger. I would agree with you, but like that's abuse 101. You you seek that behavior that you are accustomed to. And and that's the thing that I came back to. I I was like, okay, well, they bookended this with she's used to people lying to her and Mm -hmm. treating her badly, and she views them as family. Right. And now she's about to get right back into bed, create a new family, create her family uh, all over again with another liar and abuser. And it's like... Jesus, the patterns. Like, I understand why a fallible human being might fall into those, but it's mm-hmm. so it's so hard to watch it happen. It is. You're you're screaming at the person or the person on the television saying, what are you doing? You know, I can see it in your eyeballs that you know that this is a bad idea, but mm-hmm. you're still just leaning into that behavior anyway. Yeah. I get it. It's a super powerful scene, though, um, from both sides. Like, I think they're both doing a fantastic job here. Um, Jimmy acting. is doing a terrible job playing Smoke on the Water. Mm-hmm. That's true. Again, this is like the third time this song has shown up in this series. Yeah. Do you I, wonder, know? I wonder what the, the links to the other times it was used were. So the first time he was humming it as he drove away from Davis and Maine when they finally fired okay. him. Perfect. Yep. And that is the song that he was playing right before he conned the Guitar Brothers. Okay. Yeah. Huh. On that exact same guitar, actually. Seems to be he plays it when he's uh, feeling good about Mm. something he's just done. he's feeling good, man. Yeah. He shouldn't be feeling good in this scene. He should be feeling real fucking bad for what he's done. Real fucking bad. I can't believe he had the balls to ask her to do it in the voice. Oh, I know. In Kevin's voice. I literally hear, you were asleep upstairs. I was here this morning (laughs) watching the rest of this episode. I yelled no at the TV. I literally yelled no. Like, what are you doing? Why do you think you have the right to ask this? She is clearly, if you have eyes that can see, Mm -hmm. she is clearly furious at you. Yeah. But everything's okay because the ends justify the means, right? Yes, they always do with Jimmy. God damn it. Mm -hmm. And she's right. He won. And nobody else did. And she's right. He's a liar. And he, even even if he said, like, there's a moment where she's like, look me in the eye, promise me that you'll never do this again. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even attempt to. I... In his head, maybe he attempted to, but then he he couldn't will his body to do it. Yeah. Because he knows just how stupid that would be. Uh, but she, yeah, she rightfully calls him out. And and he's he, a liar. He is a liar. And any remorse he's feeling in this scene 
I feel like personally, it's just for himself. It's not for her. When she is basically right. saying that they need to break up and he yep. puts his head in his hands and says, oh, God, it's all for him. He's just yes. thinking, like, what is my home life going to look like? Am I going to get a new apartment? Am I going to be able to afford a new apartment on my own? Probably because he's a shyster. Yeah. But no, it's uh, he's a selfish person. Selfish person. This is the third scene in this episode that made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So uncomfortable. And there was no comic relief in this scene. Nope. We just end on a fucked up marriage proposal and <laughs> they should have had a yeehaw. They should have had him <laughs> playing his own commercials in the background yes. when she came home and just like let that audio drop out <laughs> for the whole scene, right? And then uh-huh. at the very end when she says if we or we can get married, just say yeehaw real quiet in the background. Or even worse, yup. Yup. <laughs> That would have been delicious, uh, but probably inappropriate given the tone that they ended on. Yeah, they were trying to go for a thing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They didn't want any comic relief. They wanted you to leave this episode feeling fucking awful, which, congratulations. congratulations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was, and those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. All right, that's it for the episode. Let's get on to feedback. If you'd like to send in your feedback for next week's episode, you can do so at bcs at baldmove.com. First up this week is Dustin says uh, a little bit about last week's episode and Kim's ethics and our discussions about that says uh, for so long, Kim tried to distance herself from Jimmy's less than ethical tactics, even trying to persuade him to take a different path. After all, she refused to be law partners with Jimmy because of their different views of the law and how to practice law. She took a steady banking client as her primary source of work, thinking she was on the straight and narrow working for Kevin and Page. 
Now, this path is dead-ended, with Kevin Wachell wanting to force an old man from his home of 30 years, which Kim can't even stomach. It's so upsetting to her that she's willing to meet criminal types with Jimmy. I think she's starting to see that she won't be able to do things the right way as a lawyer. She won't always be able to do things the right way as a lawyer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right about that. Um, Kim, I, I, I think when you're young and idealistic and you think going into the law is going to be all about helping people, um, and that's kind of what you've wanted to do. And then you sort of get into this path of like, okay, well, who, who's hurt by, you know, helping out a bank and helping them expand their operations. And it takes an event like the Acker stuff to, really see that okay well there is maybe some collateral damage even from the most innocent looking of jobs i think her having that face-to-face interaction with acker really pushed her over the edge she got to like Mm -hmm. you said physically in person see the damage that laws can actually have on people yeah even though laws are theoretically written to protect people they're also written to protect corporations and companies which yeah those Two things don't always line up, as we've seen lately. Right. And and she's thinking, I think, in the more abstract, when you're not meeting people face-to-face, right? Mm-hmm. When you're not um, sort of realizing any potential fallout from this stuff, you can kind of get into the spirit of the law and feel like, oh, well, you know, the spirit of a contract is that everybody's agreed to these things and it makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. When in actuality, maybe people don't understand quite what they're signing or they you know, circumstances change and things it's happen. It's so much grayer than that. Exactly. Right, right. And it's it's easy to kind of apply like the letter of the law and say, well, you got into this with both eyes open, kind of like Mike does to Nacho. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there there is some gray area, some bleed over from like what's right and what's actually law. Um, and I think Kim is finding those lines right now. She, yeah, she was. She's been dancing on them for a while, but mm-hmm. that might have been the tipping point. Yeah. All right. Alex says, uh, "Don't believe this has been brought up recently, so I thought I'd mention it." We know in Breaking Bad, Walt uses the Mesa Credit Union. Um, that's actually where he goes and meets Jesse to pull out the money to buy the RV to start cooking in. Uh, perhaps the upcoming legal fight is going to result in Mesa Verde's bank being completely decimated, only to rise from the ashes again in a few years as the rebranded Mesa Credit Union. What do you think? I saw this theory in a lot of places. Um, it was kind of all over Reddit, and it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, I wasn't super on board with it last week, but given sort of the status, I, I don't know. I might be back off board again. Like At some point, I was on board during this episode going, okay, well, I see where Saul is going with this. He's going to challenge the copyright. But then by the end, they have this handshake deal. Now, it's just a handshake deal, non-binding. <laughs> so at any moment, this could fall apart or Saul could, you know, feel, um, could, could get angry about how this backfired on him uh, with Kim and just decide to lash out and take it out on Mesa Verde and end up actually following through on this threat of copyright infringement. Um, it could happen. It could happen. I could totally see that. I also would raise the point that fucking everything is named Mesa something. That too. In New New Mexico. Yeah. So there's that too, but also they they went for it, right? And if you use the same name for something, how could they not be related? I don't know. 
There mm-hmm. are a lot of big question marks there. Yeah, right. You have to remember this is a fiction as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you don't want to confuse people, maybe you don't use the same names. Exactly. If you want to hint at something, maybe you do. Yeah, exactly. All right, Joseph says, uh, has some info on smoke detectors. You <laughs> Yay, want to talk about finally. this? Finally, yes, please explain this to me. <laughs> Here's the thing. Okay, so we're not going to read any follow-ups to this. But Joseph, I would really like to know because he works in a National American laboratory. Oh, cool. Um, presumably knows all about this stuff. Uh what is the radioactive material in a smoke detector actually used for? Because I don't think he says that here. He just says he says that there that is radioactive that. material in there. There is. Um, he says smoke detectors contain a small radioactive source, usually what I'm going to call americum, americium. Let me, let me look at that. Americum. Americium. Americum. Two four one. Americium, you ding dong. This is America. I'm calling it Americum. Or Americium, at least. This radioactive source is electroplated <laughs> on a little metal disc to give a nice uniform distribution of radioactive material. The metal disc is usually concealed in a plastic ionization chamber, and he sent a picture oh, over. Oh, okay. That explains it. I'd, I saw the ionization chamber, but I hadn't seen the breakdown of that chamber itself. Yes, apparently it's in that there. That explains it. Uh, in the scam, Jimmy gets many of these radioactive discs, grinds them up in a grinder to make a fine powder, and spreads them over the property. To get that much powder, they must have cannibalized way more smoke detectors <laughs> than they showed on screen. While this isn't a lot of radiation, the level is definitely high enough to be measurable. Um, after they do a follow-up, they realize the levels are below levels of regulatory concern. That said, it's generally inadvisable to spread radioactive powder all <laughs> over the place, especially in your pant legs. Yes. Oh my God. So close to your nards. What are you doing? That's how he lost all his hair. Gene's got Gene's got leg and head cancer. Who? It, oh, his head hair. I see. I see. Yeah. He still has some hairy ass arms though. So like. But his legs, baby smooth. <laughs> Freshly waxed. Baby smooth legs. I tell you what, there's nothing like waxing a man's legs that have never been shaven. That hair just comes off so smooth. Yeah, it's yes. true. Uh, but I would like to know what that radioactive material is for. Yes, please. Like, what does it do? What's its function within a smoke detector? It's so interesting. Thank you so much for sending us that. I, mm-hmm. I love this kind of nitpicky science shit. It's absolutely my stuff. Well, let's move from nitpicky science into uh, picking a nit with my categorization of Kevin. Mm. As a bad boss. Mm. Reginald says, when reviewing the episode in Dedicato a Max, you guys were a little hard on Kevin. <laughs> Got a Kevin fan here. Uh, it seems your basic point was that he was a terrible boss for not contributing any ideas as to how to take care of the Mr. Acker problem. He says, there are a lot of ways to be an effective manager, and Kevin chooses to be a little more laissez-faire, but what's the harm? Forget the nature of their enterprise. Who would want to work under people as harsh and unpredictable as Hector and Lalo? Would anyone like to be constantly disrespected the way Saul does his film crew? Look at Lyle. Would you like to work for a boss like that? Um, that doesn't tell you exactly what he wants, but plays aggressive pa- or passive-aggressive mind games uh, with you the way that Gus did in Namaste? What horrendous thing has Kevin done to Kim? He pays Kim for her law firm hand- and her law firm handsomely for their services. He allows Kim to do her side projects, pro bono work, even though she has previously said that Mesa Verde would be her top priority. He trusts Kim so much that he's willing to allow her to work on a project with him, even though her boyfriend is on the other side he compliments Kim and her associates by calling them the best. And his big sin, he expects them to do their job without interference from him. A boss that lavages praise on me, lets me do my own thing on his time, and stays out of the way while he empowers me to fix problems my own way? Sign me up. 
Sir, I take issue with the first part of this email. You are comparing apples to criminals, and that's not a thing. <laughs> Those other people are obviously terrible. You're comparing Kevin's to apples, and I don't like that either. <laughs> uh, no, I get it. I know fair. that that's definitely a thing. That's a leadership thing, is to gather yeah. people around you who are experts in their own fields and kind of guide the way that everybody works together. I don't yeah. know that I'm seeing a lot of guidance from him. But yes, I take your point. I think it's just his whole, his yeehaw aesthetic <laughs> that <laughs> well, offends me on a personal level. I, I don't I don't necessarily like people who just bark orders at others uh, yeah. without sort of giving them a reason why that's the move. And like, he doesn't even give them the move here. He just barks like, yeah, I mean, I see your point. Like, they are given a lot of latitude. They are given a lot of respect and trust. Uh, from Kevin and even especially after this episode I I have a sort of strange respect for Kevin because like I said he shows remarkable restraint in dealing with Saul in this Mm -hmm. episode where (laughs) I mean you want to talk about what Gus or Nacho would do to a guy like Saul yeah at the very least he stands by his principles right he does so you can respect that I just yeah being bossy doesn't necessarily have to be part of being a boss i think but also i've never been a boss so what the fuck do i know i I led a team once i'm a boss a long time ago i like to just shout at my employees oh no that's how you get things done oh no i'm glad you've never shouted at me that's how you get the pipelines of business (laughs) unclogged oh boy don't ever eat in the office again the sonic vibrations just loosen everything all up Sonic vibrations of yelling energy. Yep. <laughs> Good. You heard it here first. That's a thing. All right. Uh, Navar <laughs> says, amazing episode, but I feel like there was a small Breaking Bad reference that no one online seems to be talking about. And I think he's right. This is kind of amazing. The police officer that was on the phone, Detective Roberts, I believe he was talking to Jesse in Breaking Bad. Jesse said that his aunt was dying. Aunt? Am I allowed to say aunt? I always get chastised for saying aunt instead of aunt. I think it depends on where you are from in the country. Where you're from. That's what I was trying I have to no say. I no idea where I'm from. I'm a mud of the country. <laughs> uh, in Breaking Bad, Jesse says that his aunt was dying from cancer uh, and a possum got stuck underneath her porch in animal control or someone came to remove it, but she kept thinking it was there. It also totally seems like a thing young Jesse would do, switch from possum to dead body. That's interesting. That is so interesting. I'm I mean, it so is glad just that you picked egg, up on that. But yeah. But it's fun. It's a fun Easter uh-huh. egg. I like it. And also, yeah, you're right. That's totally a Jesse thing. If they had just done like a calm down, sir, there's no need for that language. <laughs> like, What do Funyuns have to do with this conversation, sir? <laughs> right. I am not a bitch. <laughs> I'm not a bitch. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. I'm no one's bitch. Hang up. <laughs> <laughs> then you could have made it real explicit, but you might be onto something, Navar. That's fun. I like that. Yeah. And finally, we come in with our Doug. resident legal expert, Doug. Uh, he's got a few uh, points from this episode as we look at the uh, art of negotiation, as Saul Goodman defines it. What Saul did may or may not be extortion from a legal <laughs> technical perspective, but it does ride the line. 
New Mexico Penal Code 316 <laughs> is what it says on the screen. I don't know. what. Are you having a stroke? Defines ex- a stroke in the corona times? I can't deal with this right now. There's no hospital to go to. Yeah. Uh, it defines whatever penal code that says. My eyes are glazed over. It defines extortion as any threat made with the intent to wrongfully obtain anything of value or to wrongfully compel the person threatened to do or refrain from doing any act against his will. And it's a very sexist uh, penal code, assuming gender here. Uh, this is separate and apart from legitimate legal claims. A lawyer can legally send a letter to someone demanding payment for harm the recipient allegedly caused his client. Such conduct is protected by the First Amendment so long as the attorney has a good faith belief in the claims merits. If that were not the case, the attorneys could make hollow threats to shake people down with impunity. A batch of commercials might meet this definition because while it is technically only a solicitation for claims and not any evidence that Mesa Verde actually did cause the kind of harm described, the overwhelming implication of such a commercial is that Mesa Verde did do that. Mm -hmm. The photograph claim is a little trickier. Assuming Saul had gotten the information by non-criminal means, this would easily be a legitimate demand for copyright infringement. If the photograph's theft became known, this could run afoul of rules preventing criminals from profiting from crimes. The photograph's theft became known. This could run afoul of rules preventing criminals from profiting from crimes. So if he stole, if he stole the photograph, uh, I, be- I believe, yeah, he's saying that like if he went, if, you know, they broke into his house, right? To get, th- he's talking about the photographs that they took, yeah, of okay. his house. Um, That's what I thought. Yeah, so this is especially true where Saul would himself be a co-conspirator. That's what I was going to say. So you're calling, in this case, Saul would be the criminal. Yes. Yeah. Um, Finally, as for the handshake deal, a verbal contract can be enforceable, but any good attorney would tell you to get it in writing to avoid the obvious problem that could occur, which I think he's talking about he said, she said kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, Kim, being an ostensibly competent lawyer, would at a minimum have sent Saul a letter confirming the terms of the settlement. That letter would be the basis of a motion to enforce the settlement. That could have prevented Saul's stun from having any effect. In addition, having reached a deal with Saul afterwards, that should be memorialized in writing as well. Uh, I don't like the term memorialized. That implies uh, or insinuates, yeah, quite a bit of bad stuff <laughs> on the horizon, which I think is probably likely. I Yeah, I... So I haven't tried to spoil myself because I'm I'm just not mm-hmm. that kind of person. But I know the titles of the episodes coming up, mm. um, and I have seen some scuttlebutt online. People who have seen screeners and so on and so forth. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there. One sec. Nothing's gonna get better. Yes. <laughs> okay. Come on. You couldn't stop me. Nothing can stop me. You think you could stop me, Joe? I thought you were gonna say who do you Saul think you dies are? next episode. Uh, Saul dies in the end. Damn. <laughs> uh, he might he might who knows but yeah that's uh that's it for our feedback which means that's it for the episode i want to thank everybody for listening if you'd like to uh support the work we're doing here you can go over to baldmove.com and check out the other stuff we do we're covering right now westworld um we're covering picard that's about to end end next week um got a lot of stuff coming up on the horizon we're doing movies each week we've got contagion coming up this week if you're <laughs> if you really just want to scare yourself into i don't know forever staying home yeah uh you can do that with us on thursday 
But that'll do it for this week. Speaking of forever staying home, this is our first episode where From we're quarantine. Only, where we're nearly knee to knee. It's mm-hmm. it's very intimate. We were earlier. This I told recording. you to move the hell back. <laughs> you told me to back off. Oh, that describes our relationship. What? <laughs> oh, that sounds so bad. It sounds bad. It's not actually. He's just he's a robot man. I am deeply affectionate. I'm like a I'm mm. like a dog person. You're Literally a, little, a dog person. A little bouncy puppy. I'm a puppy. Robots and puppies don't necessarily mix, but in this case they do. Anyway, <laughs> that's the end of the episode. We can go. All right. <laughs> Too uh, uncomfortable. See everybody next week. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Alexis. <laughs>